We are um, in this series at the minute, working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. And it's one of those passages of scripture that's incredibly familiar to a lot of us. Uh, and some parts of it are familiar to us, whether you've like spent a lot of time in the Bible or not, because there's so many little phrases in it that have worked their way into our everyday vernacular. And we're gonna read a few of them this morning. But I think with, with things like this, um, it can be so easy to just like read them and let them pass over us. And we don't really take time to understand how deeply challenging and radical and subversive these words of Jesus were. We, we read them um, quickly. And that's why we want to spend some time in the Sermon on the Mount over this term, because we believe that it tells us some things that are really important for us to know as followers of Jesus. It's like, it's, it's like Jesus' manifesto. It comes really early on in his ministry. So he's really laying out, like, this is what I'm about. This is what I have come to do. This is what I've come to fulfill. This is who I am. And not just about him, but this is what this means for you as well as you seek to follow me. And last week, um, Eddie was talking to us, and he, he kind of laid out for us how Jesus doesn't scrap the old law. So he doesn't say, that was then, and that doesn't matter anymore, and this is what I've come to do. He took that old law that they were very familiar with and said, come and see what more there is in this Come and let me turn this on its head for you because I have so much more to show you. The kingdom of God is so much more all-encompassing than you can imagine. He kind of, he turns all of these things that were so familiar to a lot of the listeners completely upside down. And the bit that we're looking at today is no exception. So we're right at the end of Matthew 5. Um, we're just going to read a little section from verse 38 to 42. So if you want to grab a Bible, or it's going to be in the screen behind me as well, I'm going to follow on. So this is Matthew 5, starting at verse 38. And Jesus says, You've heard, it, you've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile with them, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So in this passage, we have these like four little pithy phrases that Jesus uses. Um, and quite a lot of them, because they are so familiar to us, we won't understand just how radical they were. So we've taken a few of these phrases and we use them all the time and not necessarily always in a super positive way, like turn the other cheek is almost seen as like a little bit of an admonishment, you know, you should turn the other cheek, that would be the right response there. Or like go the extra mile, it's almost like it's going to be accompanied with like this kind of look, isn't it? You know, he goes the extra mile, which probably means he's a little bit weak, you know, and he just lets people walk over him or she, you know, gender equality. Um, but it conjures up a bit of a saintly idea, doesn't it? You know, it's a little bit, a little bit sickly, really. But what we're going to do is we're going to walk through these statements, and we are going to find out that actually 
they don't mean what we think they mean. Jesus, the things that Jesus is saying in these five verses is something that we are being called to. He has something really important that he wants to open up to us here. And they are far from glib. They are far from, from saintly or pious. It presents to us something that is so other in how we are to posture ourselves in the world. Jesus is, is playing out these four little scenes for us, four little cameos, bringing to light again and again with a different example of this is what I came to transform. So let's look at the first one, verse 38. You've heard it said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. And that's earlier on, that's like an old law that's um, way back in, um, that they would have been really familiar with. You'll read it in, earlier in the Bible, in Leviticus, I think it is. But um, Jesus does this thing here where he takes something, like we read last week, you've heard it said this thing, but then I tell you this other thing. So you've heard it said eye for eye and tooth for tooth. They would have known what that meant. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Now the first thing that we need to be clear about before we go any further is that Jesus is in no way condoning the perpetuation of physical violence or insinuating that someone who has violence used against them should just take it. That is not what is being said here at all. So let's just get that one out there um, early on. But there is something that we have to understand about what Jesus is presenting to us here. And the thing is, people who were listening in those days, they would have just immediately known what he meant. But because we come from a different culture, we don't immediately know what was going on. So we have to do a little bit of digging. So the people who were listening would have known that when he said when someone slaps you on the right cheek. That, that action, that very specific action with that detail was indicative of something that was totally insulting. I mean, it's, it's pretty insulting anyway. If someone slaps you, that's generally gonna be an insulting thing. But that detail of being slapped on the right cheek was something that was so degrading. It was an action that was reserved for someone that was beneath you. It probably was a backhanded slap which is a horrible visual. And it was reserved um, for the act like a superior to an inferior. So in their culture, like a master to a slave or the head of a household to a child. It was an action that was meant to bully and it was an action that was meant to browbeat. It was meant to knock someone right down physically and metaphorically to remind them of their place. And I think for all of us, we can relate. All of us, whether what, through whatever means, will have felt at some point very much put in our place. But before we uh, get up on our high horses, we need to remember that we equally will have also put many people in their place. When Jesus says here, turn the other cheek. It doesn't mean what you think it means. It doesn't mean take it. This is not doormat theology. The people who have studied this stuff deeply, they say that that word turn doesn't mean turn and then just let them have another go at you. 
It means turn and face them. That's what the word turn meant, to turn and face. And it may seem like a really small detail, but it is so crucial because you see what Jesus is doing here is he is offering a third way. Don't take it. Don't hit back. Turn and face. Jesus is offering an action here that reclaims dignity. Turn and face, not as an inferior as this action was meant to make you feel, but turn and face as an equal. The thing we need to pay attention to here is the principle that's being illustrated to us. What do we learn? When someone or something, a situation, tries to beat you down or has beaten you down, what do you do? Do we let it happen? because that's what we expected all along, or even worse, because that's what we're used to? Do we hit back and rally ourselves and defend ourselves in the same way that we were insulted? Because that feels like the right thing to do, and generally in the moment that feels pretty good. Or do we look to the third way? Do we turn and face? Because you see, what this third way does, it opens up the opportunity for us to stand in the assurance of who we are in Jesus. It doesn't diminish the hurt, and it doesn't equal it with the same level of violence, whether physical or otherwise. It reclaims dignity. Because this is what love does in the kingdom of God. Love in the kingdom of God is love that restores dignity. Love that restores dignity. When Jesus says, turn and offer them the other cheek also, it means turn and face them in the assurance of who you are and who I have called you to be, stand dignified, not because of the action or the situation, and not because of you either, but because of me. Love in the kingdom of God is love that restores dignity. And then we move on to our next little snapshot. Verse 40. It says, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. So the idea here is someone takes you to court and they are so intent on getting what they want that they demand the very shirt off your back. Another thing very key for us to understand here in this, in, in this passage is that in those days, there were no like light layers, you know? We weren't like just, you know, well, in Scotland, it's not light layers, is it? It's like as many layers as you can possibly get. But there was, you had like two pieces of clothing. That's what you had. Not unlike us, we have a multitude of choice. So we don't get it. We need to do a little bit of digging to find out what's going on there. But they had two pieces of clothing. They had a shirt, it was probably long, and they had a coat, which also doubled as a blanket. So, it seems that what we have often thought of as being like a meek form of quietly acquiescing to the request of someone else, actually, 
becomes a form of defiance. It reclaims something. Because you see, the taking of a shirt was meant to shame. It was meant to shame you. It was a literal stripping and a figurative one as well. And when Jesus says, give them your cloak as well, what he is really saying is give them all you have got and then stand in front of them naked, two pieces of clothing, remember, and see what they do then. Do not let the shame they intended to inflict on you conquer you. Love in the kingdom of God is love that is unashamed. And, and too many of us live, whether we know it or not, we live under the mantle of shame. And shame says, I am wrong. Not I did something wrong, but I fundamentally am wrong. We live under this mantle of shame and we cover it up. We wrap our cloaks around ourselves, protecting and, and hiding. And too many times we heap shame on other people just to make ourselves feel better. Now, this is so scandalous what Jesus is saying here. It's even a little bit scandalous to us today, right? Jesus is so overt in his language. I think it's metaphorical. I hope. I think we can say, please keep your clothes on um, because we don't want anyone to get arrested. But it doesn't make it any less powerful. The reason that G Jesus is so extreme here is because he's communicating something that is really important. In a situation like that, sure, you could live under the shame of having something so necessary to you taken from you. That's option A. Or you could fight back and, I don't know, like, nick their hat or hide their sandals or something. I'm thinking of, like, other clothes they might have because they don't have many layers, remember? So those are, that's your second option. And those are generally the only two that we allow room for, right? But once again, as is the case in the kingdom of God, Jesus is saying there is another way. What you thought was is not all there is. It's like he's saying, stand in front of them and say, you can have whatever of mine that you want because in Jesus, I am fully enough. Jesus goes to the extreme in this expression. He goes to what is shocking because it is so crucial for us to understand that in the kingdom of God, we get to live as people who are unashamed. Love in the kingdom of God is love that is unashamed. Then, number three, verse 41. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Seems pretty simple. If I'm honest, this verse triggers me a little bit. Many moons ago, in my giddy youth, I used to do athletics, don't laugh. It is possible. 
That was before I saw the grave error of my ways and I moved firmly into the music camp because that's what happens, isn't it? It's like you trundle along as a child and you do sport and music and the two themes seem, seem to work like in perfect harmony. And then you hit your teenage years and it's like, you must choose. You're not allowed to do both. And so you have to either skirt off to like orchestra or choir or something else and or you go off to like the sports, the sport camp and then the two things are pitted against each other until the end of days so you know before I had to make my big choice um, I used to do athletics and I was uh, I did the long jump and I did the 100 meter sprint and I was actually quite good at both of them I'll have you know and it's really interesting because actually to this day those two choices they, they still model with complete accuracy my um, my exact approach to physical exertion which is like small burst of energy, and then we're done, and that's it. But the horrible thing about doing athletics was our teacher used to make us do this, what seemed like a like 500 mile run to warm up before we had to do our athletics thing. I don't know what her logic was, but we used to have to like run around, do this big run around the AstroTurf, and it was always, just really hard and I hated it because I am not a distance runner. I'm barely a runner to be honest. I'll like I'll run for the bus and that's about it. But my friend and I we tried so like just everything in the book to try and get out of this. So it was the worst part of my day. And that's just you don't need to know all of that, but it gives you know it's an interesting story, isn't it? We've learned we've learned something here. But really whenever I like whenever I read that verse, the kind of go one mile, go two miles, I'm like, no, no, no miles, please. So it triggers me a little. Um, but once again, Jesus is telling a different story because things like this, like we don't understand what it means. We just think it's about being like super duper generous and, and whatever and, and it's, a, it's like a nice thing to do and it's a choice that you're making and it all makes sense. But actually in this culture, if someone like an official or a soldier demanded for you to come with them as they very much could, you pretty much had to do it especially if in the social structure you were beneath them. And most likely, what is not said there, but what they would have understood is that you would have to carry something of theirs. So you wouldn't just have to like come and accompany them, um, you would also have to like carry a load of their stuff as well. Now again, none of this is about excessive force or manipulation of relationship or turning a blind eye to oppression. These were meant to be situations that the people listening could immediately relate to and understand. And I really get why this one is hard. Because if someone said to me, I want you to come with me, and uh, not because I want your company, but because I'm tired and I want you to carry all of my stuff. And the reason that I'm doing that is because I am better than you. I think that I would maybe have something to say about that. Those of you that know me well know that I probably would have quite a lot to say about that. I may have some mildly expressed opinions around how that would make me feel. And, you know, who knows, I might even drop, like, the P word, patriarchy. Whoa, no, I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't mean to say that. That was just a joke. You can talk to me afterwards. That one really landed like a lead balloon, man. Okay, note to self, don't use that one tonight. But really, like, that's a hor it's, 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 it's not nice, is it, you know? Someone says, I don't want you to be, I don't really want you to be with me, I just want you for your strength, regardless of whether it's much or not, I want you to carry my stuff. 
that kind of thing, like, we don't respond well to that in our society today. And I don't respond well to it. But you see, the way of love in the kingdom of God means if I'm following Jesus that I have to react in a different way. And it's not fight and it's not flight. Because, you know, there is something in the kingdom of God whenever we respond with that way of love that opens up something that all of our fighting and all of our flighting would never open up. The way of love in the kingdom of God is always better and it always unlocks something. And I feel that it's like Jesus is saying, if they want you to go one mile with them, go with them too. Go with them two miles. Go above and beyond. Go to the unexpected. Go to what is unasked go to what is undeserved. And you know what? You don't need a pat on the back about it. You don't need to subtly drop into conversation that terribly kind thing that you did. You don't need to put it on your Instagram story if that's the kind of thing that you do. You don't need to do any of that. You don't need to do any of that for approval because you are fully approved in me. You have me. That's what Jesus says to us. Generous love in the kingdom of God, it just does it. You know, it just does it. Those first two that we read, the turn the other cheek and give them your coat, they're, quite, they're defiant, you know? They resonate of the things that Jesus came to turn upside down and they show us another way of assertion. They are assertive, but they show us another way of assertion. But this one and the final one, they are different. This is generous love that is expressed quietly, that doesn't expect anything either. Because Jesus didn't say, stop at the one mile mark and make it abundantly clear to them why you are going a second. He just said, go with them a second mile. Number four, give to the one who asks and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. And unlike the other three, there isn't actually any metaphor here because this one is uncomfortably simple. Give to the one who asks, give what you have, give what you can when someone is desperately in need or not really in need at all. Give what you can. Now it may be, may be money, it may not be. It may be time, it may be food, it may be your stuff, it may be your home. Give to the one who asks and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Because you see, generous love in the kingdom of God is love that holds lightly and that gives freely. And none of us are ever gonna achieve these heights. 
This is not a checklist. The thing is, it has already been totally and completely fulfilled for us. We just get to participate in what Jesus has already accomplished. Because you see, Jesus really practiced the things that he preached here. Turn the other cheek. Before he was crucified, he was beaten physically and he was taunted. And I'm sure he was in more pain than we could ever imagine. But you know, I don't think he rolled over. And I know that he didn't fight back. I think he turned and faced his assailants and stood in the assurance of his identity. It didn't halt the pain, but we were never promised that. If someone wants to sue you and they want your shirt, give them your coat as well. Jesus stood before the court and he was spoken against and he was accused and he remained silent, not out of fear. Not out of fear. But because he knew that he didn't have to defend, he was already fully enough. He was unashamed in the face of the shame that was sent to try and conquer him. If someone forces you to go with them one mile, go a second. Jesus lugged an instrument of torture up a hill to die for us. He didn't just go one mile or a second mile, he went every mile that was available to him to go. He gave everything. He gave freely. He didn't hold back from us. Because you see, guys, Jesus' teaching, it isn't just good advice. It doesn't just give us like a, a good option of a way to live. It is good news. It's not just good advice, it is good news. And that is the point. And sometimes it seems that we, we spend a lot of time trying to say what it was that Jesus didn't say. And actually, we don't spend enough time figuring out, well, what did he say? And what does that mean for me, even if it makes me uncomfortable? Because this means something for us today. It really does. And the greatest mistake that we can make is to dilute the teaching of Jesus so that we never end up actually having to apply it to ourselves or being challenged in the slightest. Jesus comes to us fully with complete invitation in one hand. We are fully welcome but he also challenges us because he knows that there is a better way for us to live in the world. And there is something that he came to do that we get to learn through him. And many of us will have responded to that generous love of Jesus. So that means that we know love that restores dignity, which means then that we get to become restorers of dignity. That's what we get to do. 
We get to restore dignity to those who do not have it. We know love that is unashamed, which means we get to be those who break the cycles of shame that pervade in our world. We know love that goes above and beyond, that is unexpected and that is undeserved. So then, we go above and beyond. We do the unexpected. We go to the undeserving. And we know love as well that gives freely. So we give freely what we have. We want to be people who are so generous that it, it, it pours out of us. And what we're going to do, just as, as we finish up, is we're going to take communion together, which I think is maybe, it's always a good thing to do. But in, in light of what we've been speaking about, maybe it's the best thing we could do. Because we need to remember that none of this lies on us having to be good enough to try and do all of these things and act in this particular way. When we come and, and we eat bread together and we drink wine in remembering of what Jesus has done, it means that we're saying, well, we were never meant to do this all by ourselves. You have fulfilled it completely for us. And we just get to respond to that. So I'm gonna pray for us and then Liv's gonna come and the guys are gonna be around the room with communion and there'll be some stations downstairs. If you would prefer gluten-free or alcohol-free, that will be over there. You take the bread and dip it in the wine and we remember what Jesus has done for us. So let me pray for us while we do that. So Jesus, I thank you for that truth that you are the one who, who invites us with no holds into your presence. We're just so fully invited that you love each of us completely and you, you deeply desire to know us. That in you we can find love and hope and joy that goes far and above anything that we have ever experienced. And I thank you as well, Jesus, that as much as you invite us, you also set a fire underneath us to challenge us, to purify us, to move us in a new and different way. And so I pray for each of us here. I pray especially for those um, for whom maybe some of that stuff around restoring dignity just feels a little bit too real. Uh, there have been points in their life where they have felt used or relationships have been very difficult and harmful. I pray that today will be a day when that process of restoration is done completely or begins. And I pray, I pray, Father, as well, that we will be people who restore dignity. 
that we will be moved to break cycles of shame, that we will go above and beyond, and that we will hold lightly what we have been given instead of tightly, and we will give freely.